I'd like to begin this morning by reading our text. We will not be able to finish it this morning, but it's one unit, so we're to look at uh, Jesus' radical demands of discipleship, Luke 14, verses 25 through the end of the chapter. Please read with me. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear let him hear. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? What does it mean to be one who has come to him and follows after him? I can think of no clearer and yet more challenging passage in answering that question than the one we have before us. Admittedly, a difficult passage, not as popular. Um, as others, generally not written on quilts and framed and put on the wall. And yet not a rare type of statement for Jesus. The synoptics contain this and similar things to this. Jesus has said similar things to this already in Luke. Jesus gave this speech, he gave this address, precisely because the crowds who were following him were confused on the matter. And I'm convinced that the American church is confused on this matter equally as well. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to come after him? And as Jesus warns the crowds who are following and accompanying him to examine themselves, I can only imagine that's why he says this, to help them figure this out, to help them count the cost, to help them figure out where they are. I would, I would ask that we do the same thing, um, that we would examine ourselves in light of his words. Um, and in a book, 10 Things That I Wish Jesus Never Said, um, it's a provocative title. It's a provocative title. Um, in the preface, the author says this. With the rise of the health and wealth gospel and prosperity preaching, we've become accustomed to a comfortable, what a friend we have in Jesus Messiah. It is a picture of Jesus I call Jesus light. Great taste, less demanding. Jesus is just interested in my happiness and nothing more. He wants to make me financially comfortable, physically fit, Mentally and emotionally stable, he never demands of me anything that would cause these basic goals to be missed. If only I have enough faith to believe, difficult trials and hardships in life are only there because of a lack of my faith or my part to believe that Jesus truly wants me to be happy. Then he quotes another author, We have very efficiently paired the claws of the Lion of Judah and certified him meek and mild and recommended him fit as a household pet. For pale curates and pious old ladies, we love the Lamb of God. We have discarded the Lion of Judah. And yet, in a passage like this, Jesus makes it clear. He's been teaching this to the crowds following him. He's been teaching. He's been saying it again and again, as we'll see. And here he spells it out and he lays it out. Um, Now, we're going to take our time going through this. This is probably the single strongest message like this in Luke. I mean, it's probably the high point of his clarity. And so we're going to take our time with it. But before we dive into it, um, I want to deal with some questions. I know you could probably struggle with what he says here, and we'll, we'll work through it. But I think it would be helpful to address three questions up front. 
and they're printed on the notes in that little box at the top. So let's, let's think through these things. The first question is this. Is Jesus' call to discipleship distinct, separate from his call to salvation? Now, that's clear is that this is a call to discipleship. Three times in this text, as you can see, the phrase, cannot be my disciple, is used. Verse 26, he cannot be my disciple. Verse 27, cannot be my disciple. Verse 33, cannot be my disciple. So what we're dealing with is qualifications, standards, requirements of discipleship, something like that. That's the title, Jesus' Radical Demands of Discipleship. But there's no mention in this passage about forgiveness. There's no mention in this passage about Jesus' death on the cross. There's no message in this passage about the types of things we'd associate with forgiveness and justification. So some people, I went to a school that understood this passage this way back when I was at Word of Life in uh, New York, that would say, no, this, this is Jesus' call to discipleship not to be confused with his call to salvation. Under that understanding of things, uh, the Christian life is kind of a two-step process. There's the, there's the gospel that goes out that just simply calls you to believe, and you're saved, and you're forgiven, and then you're invited to become disciples, the, two, the two-step. So first you're saved, then you become a disciple. And they would see this passage simply as, as a call to discipleship. Um, I, I, I know many who have approached them this way. I, I don't think that works. I, I don't think that's the case and allow me to explain why I think that from within Luke. I, to be clear, and what Jesus is laying out here is not distinct, is not separate from his, his invitation for reconciliation, his gospel offer of salvation. Let me, let me try to explain why. A couple reasons. First, if Luke presents a two-tier system, I would argue, if anything, it's there are disciples and some of the disciples are saved. Turn back to Luke chapter 6. Okay? The great sermon on the plain, remember? Where Jesus lays out his ethic, his demands, what he calls of his followers. And in verse 17 of Luke 6, he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all of Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured and all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, so who is this sermon addressed to? The disciples, not the crowds. This is a sermon to the disciples. And you work through it, and he, he tells them it's the Jewish wisdom, the blessings and the curse. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, are hungry for righteousness, who are weeping over their sins, who are persecuted. And woe to those who view themselves as rich, who are satisfied with the things of this life, who are laughing and content. And people speak well of, causing them to love their enemies, turn the other cheek. But notice at the end as he gives his sort of call to response, he says to his disciples that just because you're my disciple doesn't necessarily mean you're mine. Look at verse 46. He said to the disciples, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? What's the implication? You can say I'm your Lord all day long. I'm challenging that claim if you don't obey me. And then he goes on to describe that the two builders who build the houses, right? And one, when judgment comes, collapses, does not survive judgment. So he's saying this to his disciples, warning his disciples, some of you have not been building on a rock. Some of you, when judgment comes, are going to get swept away. I'll give you another reason why I, why I think this. Um, in chapter 8, chapter 8, turn, we're just going to work our way back up. Chapter 8. We're going to see a familiar saying that Jesus gave. Remember how Jesus ends our passage? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Where have we heard that before? Jesus begins to say these things in Luke chapter 8. And in verses, uh, so he begins the parable of the sower in verse 8 of chapter 8, and he ends it with, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then his disciples asked him what this parable meant, and he said, to you, the disciples... It's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. For others, they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. 
Now, now Luke has just cast two categories. There are those who are blinded. There are those who are deafened. And there are those who are gifted by God to see and understand. And what's the dividing line? The disciples see. The disciples are gifted to hear. And everyone else is deafened. And everyone else is blinded. There's no third category for saved non-disciples here. Luke doesn't present it that way. You have, to, you have to bring that into the Luke from other books or other passages. You've got to bring that theology in and try to shoehorn it in because Luke just knows of those who are gifted to hear and see and those who are blinded and deafened. Now come along to Luke 9, where again we'll hear a familiar saying. And here it's unmistakable. Luke 9, Jesus has just identified that he is going to die Verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, universal, inclusive, if anyone, universal, inclusive, would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Now here, the question of what are you talking about, Jesus are we talking about salvation, life and death, or are we talking about discipleship is crystal clear because he says, for whoever would lose his life, save his life, will lose it. I'm sorry. And whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. We're talking about losing or gaining your life. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits himself? Not forfeits reward, not forfeits crown. He forfeits himself. And I would submit to you, Luke 9 is unquestionably, by Jesus, put into the categories of eternality, life and death, heaven and hell. And notice it's the same exact metaphor he uses in our passage, picking up your cross and following him. Exact same metaphor. So, back to our passage in Luke 14. Now, I could argue more extensively, I'm just dealing with internal arguments from within Luke. I, I, I think it is not plausible to, from Luke, argue that Luke intends for us to understand this call to discipleship is anything other than Jesus' call to salvation. I, I don't believe there's, there's Luke presents a two-tier approach. Um, I think it's completely consistent with what he says in chapter 9, which then leads to a second question. If that's, if that's true, and by the way, there'll be time to discuss this in my ABF, so if you've got questions, jot them down, we'll take them. Please don't believe me, because I said it if I don't persuade you from the text. Um, the second question then is this. How then are we to reconcile this passage with other New Testament gospel calls? Um, and, and that's something I sympathize with. You know, I know people, their different passages are brought them to faith, or as they share their faith, they... They move and gravitate towards certain passages. Some people like the Romans Road. Some people like Ephesians 2. And what's difficult then is how do you take a passage like this with all of its robust demands, all of its um, extreme demands, and lay it alongside of, come unto me all you are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest, and say, well, this is two ways of looking at the same thing. How do you go to the Philippian jailer and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, you and your household? How do you, how do you, how do you say these, these are all the same thing? And in fact, the attempt of the people, I think, at the school I went to, it, is their attempt to harmonize that. They, they didn't think you could put these things together, and so they said, no, they're different things. I don't, I don't think that's the case, but I'd like to take a few minutes to try to talk about how that works. Uh, I want you to notice in our text in Luke 15 what Jesus does and doesn't say. Um, I, I think this is, is, is tied in with and consistent with and part of his call to salvation, but clearly it's not a complete call to salvation. He's talking to people who've been following him. We see that they're accompanying him, and they've been picking up his teaching. And Jesus is focusing on a very narrow part of his gospel offer. That's why we don't hear about cross. That's why we don't hear about forgiveness. What he's focusing on is this. Salvation is being reconciled with God, yes? That's, it's about entering into a right relationship, a restored relationship with God. Jesus has been dealing with, up to this point, people who have seemed to make a profession, seem to have made a genuine response, and yet as we saw last week with the parable of the wedding banquet, all these excuses, all these other things take up primary importance. Luke starts this passage 
Now, great crowds accompanied him. They're following him still. And we know, if you've read Luke, if you're a Christian, that these great crowds are going to scatter. Jesus knows it too. Jesus knows that though these people are following him where he goes, though these people are out in the hot Middle Eastern sun trekking behind him, they are not true disciples. So Jesus is turning to them, and he's focusing specifically on what it means to be a disciple, what it means to enter into that relationship with God. In fact, I challenge you to think of any passage in the Bible that contains the totality of the gospel. The Philippian jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Again, no mention of the cross, no mention of the resurrection, no mention of sin. Presumably, the Philippian jailer had heard or learned that before with his time with Paul and Silas. So I want you to understand, it's a great gospel passage. It's not a complete gospel passage. 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus... um, died on the cross for our sins according to Scripture, was raised on the third day, appeared to Paul and Cephas in over 500, no mention of faith. You see, the New Testament frequently is looking at the gospel and looking at parts of the gospel, but, but we have a desire to reduce. We, we want to get down to four spiritual laws, two ways to live. We like slogans. We like simplicity. And so we, we gravitate towards that. And if you do that, then passages like this are going to be challenging. Jesus has elsewhere in Luke called people to faith. Only believe, he says. Here, he is clarifying specifically. We're looking at a focused issue. What does it mean to be his disciple? What does it mean to be reconciled to God? What does that relationship look like? In fact, let me, let me give you a way of thinking about this passage. It's almost as if, we'll use the wedding analogy. It's almost as if a, a young woman is, is uh, thinking about marrying a man and the parents pull her aside and they say to her, Dear, I want you to understand, if you get married to him, you're leaving any other lovers and boyfriends behind. I want you to understand, if you get married to him, all your possessions and all your money, it's no longer yours, into privately. I want you to understand that he's going to lead you. and He's going to uh, direct and you, you need to submit. You're defining the relationship to her. You're making sure that before she gets involved into this commitment, she has her eyes wide open and understands what she's getting into. I think that's the same thing going on here. So we're dealing with a narrow aspect of the gospel, but it's precisely the error that these people were confused and were making. So Jesus, knowing that, addresses the part of their misunderstanding. And that's the same thing he's doing here. So notice what Jesus says and does not say. Notice what he speaks to and does not speak to. He also doesn't tell them how they're going to do these things. No mention of the church coming alongside of them as they bear their cross. No mention of the Holy Spirit giving aid and strength and encouragement. I think probably the best way to look at this is framing the relationship, framing the, the understand, um, understood relationship. So how would you reconcile these passages with other New Testament gospel calls? By understanding that this is defining that relationship. And another way of putting it now would be something like, when you offer the gospel and you offer people to be reconciled to God, what does that new reconciled relationship look like? What does it mean to be married to Christ? Well, Jesus here explains that. This brings up a third question. How are we to reconcile this passage with justification by faith? That's probably the most common question I get when I, when I talk through these things is, you know, this sure looks an awful lot like works. This looks an awful lot like justification by doing things. Um, And we know, and I firmly believe, that we, Romans 3.28, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. It's a gift. It's a gift. You don't don't work, you don't earn your salvation. Um, Absolutely, amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Um, Let me give you another analogy. It is absolutely free and costs you nothing to join the Marines. In one sense, right? It costs an awful lot to join the Marines. And if a recruiter were being honest and forthright, he'd make that clear. You understand, son, that if you sign up, we're going to tell you where to go. We're going to tell you when to get up. We're going to tell you what to wear. We're going to tell you what to do. We expect absolute obedience. We'll train you. We'll work with you. Understand, when you join the Marines for free, that's the relationship you're entering into. And that's what's going on here. That's why Jesus can speak of a cost to count. It's about understanding those things. 
precisely because these people are misunderstanding it. These people think they're with Jesus. They're following him. They're going to say things like, Lord, we ate at your table and you preached in our towns. We saw that a chapter ago. He's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. Um, one, one other example. Let's take the example of cross-bearing. How does that work in with faith? You've got to pick up your cross or you can't be Jesus' disciple, but we're saved by faith and not by works. Let me give you an example. Now, I asked my son Abner permission to give this example. It's kind of funny. When I asked him, I said, Abner, do you mind if I use you as a sermon? Il- Hi, Abner. As a sermon illustration. Um, he looked kind of his brow furrowed. He said, what about? I said, about that time you went to the dentist? His brow furrowed again. Am I going to have to come up front? <laughs> I said, no. He said, oh, okay then, okay. Um, so, so here's my analogy, okay? Um, Abner um, has inherited from his father a healthy dislike of needles. Um, you, can, you can ask um, Jessica Stark. I grip, the, I grip the arms and I fail. I, I can make myself do it. I just hate it, you know? And my son has inherited that from me. And the first time he went to get a cavity filled, he didn't know what he was in for and so it just happened. But the second time, he recognized the needle. And my wife had told me, you, you have to go with him this time. <laughs> so, uh, so I went... And the needle came out, and uh, he got scared. And he made it clear he did not want to be here. He did not want to go through with this. And uh, Jake Hopper was the dentist. He was kind of to step out for a minute, give me a minute, my son. And we had a conversation that went something like this. I said, son, um, I'm your father. You're my, you're my son. God has put me in your life to care for you, to look out for you, to do his best for you, to nourish and protect you. And he's called you to, to honor and obey me, Yes, yes. Well, son, I know it seems bad, and I know it seems painful and scary, but I assure you this is necessary. I assure you this is for your good. It needs to happen. Now, as my son, will you trust me? Will you trust me? And it's okay that you're scared, and I'll hold your hand, and I'll be with you through this whole thing. Will you trust me? I I think that's how embracing suffering is by faith. God says, I've brought this thing into your life. And I know it looks scary and it looks ugly, and I know you don't want it. I'm telling you, it's necessary. I'm telling you for your growth, for my glory, my kingdom, it must be. Will you trust me? I'll hold your hand. You can be scared. That's fine. You can cry tears. That's fine. I love you. I'll see you through it. Will you trust me? I I think that's how we cast this in terms of faith. Will we trust Jesus? Will we come to him and say, I trust you with my relationships. I trust you with my life. I trust you with my possessions. I trust you with my happiness. You're my Lord. Do with me as you see fit. God help me. That's, that's how I think that works. Additionally, um, if this isn't the case, then we'd have a problem with Christians in other countries because I think we only ask such questions. Is this what it means to be a Christian? Is this true? If you're not willing to do this, you can't be a Christian. And we try to make excuses. But in many parts of the world today, this is unquestionably and absolutely true. You go to a Muslim country, and you explain the gospel to a young man. And what he understands is likely to happen. If he converts and confesses, which Jesus says, we've got to confess before men if we're asked, his family will either do an honor killing or hold a funeral for him. The community will ostracize him. It's the same in the first century. In many parts of the world, understand, becoming a Christian means exactly counting these costs. It's only living in a wealthy Western country that is now in the decline of its Christian influence, where you could be a Christian and that would actually give you cred in the community and status, that we look at this and go, oh, that doesn't seem right. But for many Christians in the world today, it's absolutely the choices they're facing, the cost they're counting. Okay, that's, that's all my introduction. And, um, <laughs> no, but I want to deal with these things and take them seriously. I want to deal with these things and take them seriously because this is a hard passage. And I don't intend to let soften Jesus' words or you know, trim his claws, to use the analogy of the lion. But I want to make it clear, this is about a relationship. This isn't about performance. So when you say, well, how much cross-bearing is necessary? No. It's Jesus saying, guys, you understand, this is what we're aiming at. This is what we're going to be doing. This is what you're going to spend the rest of your life doing, right? Okay. Good. We're on the same page. Great. And, and his church and his spirit and his people will help and we'll do it imperfectly, absolutely. This very gospel contains an account of Peter being scared of a servant girl denying Christ three times with oaths 
So this isn't a level of performance we're looking for. This is an understanding and agreement to a relationship. You understand this is what, what God has the right to do. You come to Christ that way. So with that introduction over, let's dive into with our remaining time. Jesus' radical demands for discipleship. We're just going to look at the first one. I doubt we'll get to the second. That's okay. We'll pick it up next week. We'll go as far as we go. And here's your first command. You must come to Christ with no greater love. You must come to Christ with no greater love. Now, we've looked at the immediate context a little bit already, but I want you to focus on what's going on. He's just finished with the Pharisees and the the parable of the great wedding banquet. But Luke connects this passage with what came before. Um, The ESV has now, but but the Greek conjunction actually conjoins these things. And so in the context, he's just told the Pharisees about all the excuses that these people in this story offer for not coming and responding to the master's invitation to his banquet. And when we looked at them, their excuses over property and things and over relationships. Remember, I just took a wife. I can't come. And Jesus says the master's response is he's not going to let those people in. He's going to go invite some other people. He's going to invite the lame and the poor and the blind And I think that's exactly what we see him doing here. But the same standard for the Pharisees is applied to these people. Notice the connection of thought. Wife in verse 20, wife in verse 26. One man gives the excuse, I can't come to the banquet, sorry, I just took a wife. Here Jesus says, look, you can't love your wife more than me. That can't be your excuse to stop you from coming. That's the connection of thought. He's he's inviting here the others, but the same standards. You, your property, your possessions can't stop you. You can't love them more than Christ. Look at verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. He's, he's getting ahead of it this time. Rather than giving the invitation and waiting for the lame excuses to come in, this time the invitation comes with the no excuse clause. You're invited to God's kingdom. Please be aware. You have to want this more than the field and the oxen that you got to go look at. That's understanding, I think, the context. And they're following him. Notice that, too. Great crowds are following him, but where are they following him to? The alert reader in Luke knows, ever since 951, when Jesus resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. And Jesus has told his disciples repeatedly, what's going to happen when he gets to Jerusalem? He is going to die. He is going to suffer. He's going to be crucified. So these people are following him, but they have no idea really where they're going. I mean, I'm sure they know we're heading up to Jerusalem for the Passover. We're pilgrims on the way to Jerusalem, but they don't know what's coming. And so Luke pictures this. I, I think of this as Jesus is going, they're accompanying him. He's, he's heading to Jerusalem. He's got these big crowds behind him, and just he stops, and he turns to them. And that's what Luke says. So we're all heading to Jerusalem, and Jesus stops and turns to them and tells them this. And as hard as this is, it is loving. As hard as this is, it is kind. Because if you're a false disciple, like most of this crowd, that delusion is the most dangerous thing you can have. Because at least when you know you're lost, you're going to be looking for the door, looking for salvation. But if you think you're set... You're in the most dangerous place you can be in. Jesus is warning them by giving them, giving us a way of sizing up. Are we disciples? Are we his? Have we entered into that relationship? Great crowds were following him to Jerusalem, to Jerusalem. And so Jesus is trying to prepare them. If they're going to follow him, what that's going to look like. Okay. And so Jesus says, if anyone, notice that universal inclusive, anybody, No exceptions. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sister, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, what on earth does this mean? Now, Jesus does not mean, I'll tell you this, does not mean that you need to have feelings of animosity and contempt and anger and disdain for your family. It would contradict what he's already taught, that you need to love your neighbor as yourself. Taught that you got to love your enemies. What's, what's going on here? This is a Hebrewism. This is a Hebrewism. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis 29. Let me show you what I mean. It's a Hebrewism. It's a way of, of making a point, of showing a contrast. It's hyperbolic, um, if you prefer. But in, in Genesis 
29, two verses, make this clear. Jacob had two wives. They were sisters, Rachel and Leah, right? And the text says this, verse 30, 29, 30, and 31. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. I thought he just loved Rachel more. Yes, yes, he doesn't genuinely like hate Rachel. But the difference of his love, I mean, Leah, but his difference in his love for Rachel and Leah is so big. It's not, just, it's not like they're close and, and Rachel ebbed up a little more. It's a significant gap that, that the Lord can speak of this as seeing her being hated. And that's the idea here. What Jesus is demanding is not that you hate your family, but that your love and your allegiance for him is first, and such a first that second isn't very close. A parallel passage in Matthew makes the same point. Anyone who loves mother, brother more than me. That's the idea. So the blank here is Jesus' demand to hate means to love less. To love less. C.S. Lewis comments on this. How are we to understand the word hate, he writes in The Four Loves? That love himself should command what we ordinarily mean by hatred? It's almost a contradiction in terms. I think our Lord, in the sense here, intended hatred or hate like he did to St. Peter when he said, get behind me. To hate is to reject, to set one's face against, to make no concession to the beloved, to make no concession to the beloved when the beloved utters, however sweetly, the suggestions of the devil. So in the last resort, we must turn down or disqualify our nearest and dearest when they come between us and our obedience to God. And so what he's saying is even Peter, as much as Jesus loved Peter, when, when Peter speaks something that comes from Satan, this demonic wisdom, Jesus gives it no quarter. He turns his face to it. Get behind me, Satan. In the last resort, we must turn down or disqualify our nearest and dearest, and they come between us and our obedience to God. Heaven knows it will seem to them sufficiently like hatred. That's, I think, what Jesus is saying. It means to love less and have a lesser commitment and loyalty. But unless you think that lets it off the hook too easily, Jesus' demand has scriptural precedent. Jesus' demand has scriptural precedent. This is not an idea he grabs out of nowhere. Um, you don't need to turn in your Bibles. I'll, I'll read you the account, but you remember what did God call on Abraham to do? To offer up his only son. As a test, God didn't truly desire Abraham to kill his son. When Abraham obeyed, this is what the angel of the Lord said. Genesis 22, 15 to 18. The angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sands that are on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. See, Abraham obeyed, your blank, did not withhold his son. When God said to him, what's more precious to you, me or your child, Abraham is heralded as a man of faith. This is the high point of his faith because when push came to shove, not, not that he didn't love his son. In fact, precisely because he loved his son, we see how great his love for the Lord is. He did not withhold, but he obeyed. T- turn to Exodus 32. There's another biblical precedent I think even is, is more of a continuity. We, we talked last fall, uh, last Reformation Day, about how we as Christians, as the church, are kingdom of priests. You and I are priests and priestesses in God's house. I want to take a look at, in Exodus 32, how the tribe of Levi obtained their priesthood. You remember the incident with the golden calf? Moses went up on the mountain, and while he was gone, they came to Aaron and said, make for us gods to serve, and Aaron made the golden calf. Moses comes down the mountain, breaks the Ten Commandments. He's the only person I knew who in one action broke all Ten Commandments at the same time. And verse 25. 
But people forget this. This doesn't show up in like the children's version and the flannel graph, but, but this, is, this is important. When Moses saw, verse 25, that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood at the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? Which is to say, whose allegiance is ultimately with God? And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. He said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the words of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. So Moses said, put your sword on, start at one end of the camp, make a beeline to the other end of the camp. Whoever you encounter, cut him down. Brother, cut him down. Father, cut him down. Daughter, cut him down. And Moses said, today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each of you, at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that you might bestow a blessing upon you to this day. How did Levi obtain their priesthood? The double portion for the Lord was their portion because they showed, here's the blank, supreme, the Levites were supremely loyal to God. And Moses, you don't need to turn there, but Moses picks this theme up again when he gives his departure song in Deuteronomy 33, where he blesses the tribes. Listen how he blesses the tribe of Levi. Verse 8 through 11. And of Levi he said, give to Levi your Thuman and your Urim, to your godly one whom you tested at Massah, with whom you quarreled at the waters of Meribah, who said of his father and mother, I regard them not. He disowned his brothers and ignored his children, for they observed your word and kept your covenant. Therefore they shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your law. They shall put incense before you and your whole burnt offerings on your altars. Bless, O Lord, his substance and accept the work of his hands. Crush the lines of his adversaries, of those who hate him. They rise not again. So I can only imagine Israelites hearing Jesus speak this way. They're thinking of Levi. They're thinking of that tribe. They're thinking the standard that God called them to. So we're not to actually hate and be jerks and mean to. But understand that when, when Jesus gives this type of demand, God has given this type of demand before, this standard of absolute loyalty. Abraham was called to, the father of our faith. The tribe of Levi was called to, it's how they became priests. I suggest you, if we're priests of God, he may well call us to that standard as well. This is con There's continuity here, in other words. This isn't some new thing that God might demand this level of allegiance. Okay, so what does this mean? I want to take our last 10. We're just going to get through the first point this morning, and that's fine. I thought as much when we got started. Um, what does this mean? It means we're not hating them by being angry, but what it means is if God calls in our relationships, we, we will surrender them, and we, we will not prize them more than we prize Him and obedience to Him. Here's what I think it means. You must be willing to sacrifice every relationship. You must be willing to sacrifice every relationship. To be Christ's disciple, to be reconciled and in a right relationship with God, is to mean you are willing, you are not holding back every relationship. That's hard. <laughs> That's really hard. Um, not that God will necessarily call upon you to break those relationships, but, it, but he's making it clear at the onset, I am God, and if you want to be reconciled with me, you don't come with a, with a caveat list. I love the illustration of, that I heard uh, Fred Brad Fulton tell me from a sermon he'd heard of what most of us want to do is we want to jot down our dreams and our aspirations for our life. And then we want, and we think we're good in doing this. We think we're being righteous. You know, I'm a good Christian, and why? Because I submitted to God all my plans and I ran them by them first. Is this okay? Will you sign this off? Check. Um, the Christian life, I think, based on something like this, is much more God handing you a blank sheet of paper and saying, sign. What are you going to write in there, Lord? Sign. What if you write conflict in the home? Sign. What if you write missionary in a foreign field? Will you sign? What if you write martyr? What if you write poor? What if you write persecuted? What if you write, fill in the blank, 
What Jesus is saying is you come empty-handed, you come just as I am, and I'll let you be God and I'll be your creature. Because I don't know better than you, and I'll, and I'll trust you, and I'll let you lead, and I'll let you do what you see fit with my relationships. Um, and I want to think through this. What does that mean? What does it mean relationship to parents? Well, I've, we've already considered the Muslims um, who their parents, the, probably the worst thing a Muslim parent could imagine is their child defecting from Islam. And in, in many um, tight Jewish circles today, they'll hold funerals for converts. Um, and you can think of the pressure and the disappointment facing your parents. This isn't how we raised you. Oh, what is the family going to think? We're going to be so ashamed of you. And facing that because you love Christ more. Now, make no mistake, Jesus is not for a second suggesting that's going to be easy, painless. And like I said, this text doesn't give the fullness of everything because in that, the Spirit will protect, the Spirit will encourage, the body of Christ will comfort and strengthen. It's not as though Jesus is expecting you to do all these things on your own strength and gumption. Goodness, do you trust me? Or will you hold it back? No, no, Lord, that's too much. I can't possibly endure the, the scorn of my parents. Or he moves on from parents, father and mother, to wife. Now, I know firsthand of many marriages where precisely because one spouse is committed to Christ, there is conflict. It's sad that that's the case. But precisely because one of the spouses is faithful and loves Jesus, there is conflict. And that is a cost that must be counted. Being faithful to Christ might actually be a wedge in your family. And didn't Jesus say as much just a chapter before, right? No, two chapters before. Chapter 12. Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there'll be five divided. Three against two and two against three they'll be divided. Father against son, son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Mother Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. This is no new teaching on Jesus' part. And so, as much as I love my wife, Jesus wants me to love him more. And as much as, as, as I love my children, Jesus wants me to love him more. You know, And if I view these relationships as existing for me, this this is the important thing to think. When you become a Christian, all your life and all of you becomes his. And you become a steward. My relationships, I steward them. They're not my relationships. They're his relationships that he's given me tasks and instructions with. Because what, what happens with us is if we view them as our relationships, then anything that might compromise that relationship or make that relationship less delightful, and, in, and, and compromise our enjoyment, we want to move away from. I want to protect my relationships. And so speaking the truth to someone in love, if that's going to make them angry at me, I don't want to do that. And in marriage, that can be tough because you, you can't get away from this person. So if there's conflict that's ongoing, being faithful to Christ might bring lots of conflict. And Jesus is saying, if you aren't willing to do that, go home. Yeah. That's what he says right here. This isn't very seeker sensitive. Go home. If you prize the peace in your marriage more than me, go home. Move on to kids. And again, I know, I know this is constantly the challenge. God says they're his kids and he tells us what to do with them. We just want peace in the house, right? We just want a peaceful house. Add on top of that a successful in school kid who's socially well adjusted, who gets a decent job, goes to a good school. That's, that's our goals. God says, I want them to know me. And I want you to rear them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And that's work. And oftentimes, again, that creates conflict in the home. And, and sadly, I've seen parents who would rather have peace in the home than be faithful. It's as if they're saying, well, if, it's, if I have to decide between war with my child or disobedience, I'm going to choose disobedience. And what Jesus is saying to these people up front is, like, look, if that's what you're going to do, go home. Go home. Because what we're doing when we refuse to do this is the same thing a wife does or a husband does when they say, you know what, I don't want to be faithful to you. I don't want to, I don't, I don't, it's too narrow and restrictive. What they're saying in essence is, I don't want to be your husband. I want to be your wife. 
You know, when you have a rebellious child who says, not I struggle to obey. And then I want, this is the distinction I want you to get. There's all the world difference between Christians struggling and bumbling and failing and getting back up and marking again the point they're aiming for and getting back on course. And the, the person who says, no, that's too much. I won't do it. Nope, God can't ask that of me. That's unreasonable. It's not going to happen. It's the difference between a child who struggles with obeying, finds within them a, a welling up, anger and rebellion and all those things that we you know, generally show up in the teen years. But when they're called on it, they recognize there's some confession. And, well, my goodness, is this hard. And the child who says, you know what? I, I don't think I need to obey you. I don't like obeying you. I don't like your rules. I resent them. And I, uh, I don't intend to obey them. What that child is saying, and what I've had to counsel parents sometimes to communicate to their child is this, then what you are saying is you don't want to be my son or my daughter. You don't like that relationship. That, that's what defines a parent-child relationship. The parent is to protect and shepherd and nurture and, 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 and grow up the child. The child... Basic commandment, honor and obey your parents. You say, I don't want to do that. What you're saying is, I don't want to be your child. And for the would-be disciple who says, I don't want to do this, what they're saying is, I don't want to be your disciple. That's the difference between Christian struggling and church discipline, right? Because how many times do you forgive somebody in a day if they get up and say, I'm sorry, I repent? Seventy times seven. We don't discipline people just because they struggle with sin. Discipline is what's brought in. One after one and two and three and the whole body goes and they say, no. Nope, not interested, nope. What we're saying in discipline is basically you by your actions and you by your words are saying, I don't want to be Christ's disciple. We think it's now time to treat you that way. We love you. We pray for you. We hope it resolves differently. But your refusal to obey, not your struggle to obey, your refusal to obey is you saying, I don't, I don't want to be a disciple. Um, for every relationship, following Christ may cost. Whether it's conflict in the home, when you'd rather have peace, whether it's conflict in your marriage with your children, whether it's the approval or disapproval of your parents or your siblings, Christ demands first place. And not a just barely first place, but a full-on second place is a ways back first place. And I know this is hard, and, I, and I'm belaboring the point because so many Christians I've met, this is a new concept for them. Short, shortly after becoming a Christian, um, I was faced with a, with a difficult dilemma. A very close family member wanted me to participate in their wedding, and yet the wedding itself uh, was not in accordance with Scripture. And I, I wrestled with what to do, and I talked. I mean, I was a year-old Christian, and I talked to a lot of Christians. And what I found so troubling was there were not people saying, no, this isn't a sinful wedding. They'd grant that point. And we're, I'm not going to go into the details. It doesn't matter. Grant is a sinful wedding. It should not take place. They were all granting it. But their response was, but it's your, and then they'd name the close family relative. It's your brother. It's your sister. It's your cousin. As if somehow, normally, this would be wrong. But, and I'm thinking to myself as a new believer, this is precisely what Jesus talked about. Precisely. And it's not easy, and it's hard, and it'll be difficult, and we will need each other, and we'll need help, and we'll need grace, and we'll stumble, and we'll fail. But let us not act surprised or shocked when, when these things come up. Jesus was not into bait and switch. It wasn't, I'm going to make the sell it easy. He was, he was hard sell. He just stops walking to Jerusalem, turns on. Oh, by the way, guys, if you're not willing to meet these standards, go home. And, and yet, in a country where, where there is very little persecution, and we very seldom see the cost that must be counted, we, we've, we've deluded ourselves into thinking that we can have it all. Um, final point. That's all we'll get to this morning. Point E. You must be willing to sacrifice every desire. You must be willing to sacrifice every desire. Notice the last thing on his list. Not just father and mother, not just wife and children, not just brothers and sisters, but yes, even his own life. And I'll just begin to touch on this. We'll pick this up here next week because our time is up. But Jesus is basically saying, not only do you be willing to sacrifice those relationships, but your dreams, your aspirations, what you meant to do, what you want to accomplish, 
They're his now. Peter, don't think, intended on being crucified upside down next to his wife and daughter. That's how the Lord led him. And I know plenty of people who had plans for their life and they're someplace else. You, you don't love your own desires. You give them equally no quarter. And it sort of leads into our next point. Now, again, don't misunderstand. Jesus is not demanding that we are perfectly doing this all the time. We are not perfectly doing this all the time. Peter is not going to do this in a couple chapters very well. But we understand that's the goal. That's the relationship. That's what we're entering into. That's what we're aiming at together. And I know this is hard. They needed to hear it. And I think we do too. The very fact that this is hard and possibly even unfamiliar or new is the best evidence possible that we need to hear it. So, um, by God's grace, we will hear His Word. By God's grace, we will see Him as worthy. By God's grace, we'll realize that all these things that are holding us back are like in the parable of the prodigal son, pig slop. They twinkle and they shine, but He is the real value. And we'll pick this up next week. Maybe I just want to close in prayer um, that God would give us the faith and ears to hear, to receive His Word, and to do a serious self-evaluation of ourselves. Lord God, this is a hard word. Who can bear it? And that you give the answer yourself in your word. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. It requires your spirit to receive these words. It requires your gift to not choke on this. And so, Lord God, I pray you would make that gift. You would give eyes to see, ears to hear. You'd help us to receive and not spit out your word. That we would soberly consider ourselves in relationship to you and understand just who you are, who the one is to whom we have to do and what you require of us, the level of allegiance and loyalty. Lord, smash the idols in our lives. Rip them out of our hands if need be so that you would be our one and only love. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.